I hear like a heartbeat in mine. Oh, you might have the metronome going. Oh, I do. Okay. That's bullshit. I can't believe they have that as the default setting on GarageBand. Yeah, it never has been before, but... All right. All right, guys. Well, hey, welcome to the show. Welcome, We're back welcome. at long last after our triumphant circumcision episode. We got some feedback. On yeah, this one. Lot, lot. I got texts, emails, every type of feed, pigeon carrier pigeon feedback. Yeah, and a few of the, uh, uh, like a lot of it, you know, kind of fit into <laughs> some certain. Oh, is that Willow? That's Willow. Willow's a uh, featured <laughs> guest on this on this episode. As She's she, the third host. She's often been in the background there. She's kind of audio engineering. Yeah. So, I mean, we got, we got an email about this. Did you want to read this email? You wanted to talk about this email that we got from Max, who is a just random fan that we have online. Definitely not a close friend of either one of us. Not true. He's one of my best friends from growing up. No, I I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I thought you were, I don't know if you've met him. It must be confusing No, no, no. For we've you. met. We've met. Okay. You've like, since like we became friends, like the first week we were friends, you're like, I have a friend named Max and he's like, kind of reminds me of you in certain ways, but you're very different in other ways. Oh, that's I funny. Like I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see any similarities now other than the name, but there's a lot of Maxes in my life. Keeps it confusing. <laughs> Sorry. So this, so, well, there, there's like two things. Max as well. I'll leave his last name uh, anonymous, but non-host Max, fan Max, and another anonymous listener, actually maybe even two anonymous listeners, uh, mentioned that we didn't talk about uh, FGM, female genital mutilation. And my mom, my mom did too. She brought that up too. Yeah. What what did she think that we, like, what was that? She wasn't, she like, she was like, of course, I love the episode. It made me think of uh, FGM. Female genital mutilation is like referred to as, as, she said female genital mutilation. And yeah, she's like, well, it's something you could compare to circumcision because some people uh, use it as an as a kind of analogous procedure, right? And that's what a few other people have brought up too, like Max in his email. I think that um, as a, on the side of the anti-circumcision, the like firmly anti. I feel like that's normally how the context in which FGM gets compared to yeah yeah it's 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 brought up to kind of um because fgm is widely held to be a barbaric repressive primitive kind of practice and um saying that you know calling it male genital mutilation is a way of putting it on the same level and making it seem like okay we're actually what we're doing is like this backwards anti you know anti-body anti-sex procedure just like fgm is and so i do think that that is like noteworthy because you know what we talk what we've been talking about a lot like the whole new atheist rational thinker crowd who uh say they want like say they're into secularism and everything like that they're like really focused on this islamophobic tendency within the whole like overall umbrella like discourse that they're developing and i think the point is that they're saying like we well, yeah, Male circumcision is basically like w- analogous to what these crazy backwards Muslims in Africa are doing. Uh, so it's trying to, you know, paint it in a really bad light. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, because FGM often becomes the limit case for cultural relativism. It's often brought in as the, okay, well, if everything's relativistic, are you okay with this? That's It's, it's like the most extreme and, you know, yeah. r- like reprehensible example. And 
just to, in, in also just to point out a slight inaccuracy in the in that debate, it is often brought up as sort of a barbaric Islamic practice, mm-hmm. but Islamic legal authorities roundly reject it, and it's generally held to be it is practiced in in parts of Africa like with predominantly Muslim populations, but it's often seen to be a, a sort of like pre-Islamic tribal vestigial yeah. practice. That's, that's what that I've heard. It's like from maintain. the cultural substratum and actually it's not even only practiced by Muslims in those areas. It's practiced yeah, yeah. by other, non, other religious groups Non-Muslims practice it. But it fits really well within this, like in this sort of anti or Islamophobic secularist discourse. Islam is bad because it holds women back. And so this is like such a glaring example of patriarchal violence against women. So it, it gets aligned for that reason. Our... Uh, non-host Max, fan Max, he wasn't saying that he, he buys that analogy. He was just saying that, you know, it's interesting. And in another, th- th- that comparison is made because it's also made from the thing of, well, if FGM is like removing the clitoris so that like women can't have sexual pleasure and male circumcision like reduces male sexual pleasure, then they're kind of doing the same thing in the yeah, it's like on a spectrum, yeah. It's like on a spectrum. But I want to bring up, a, can I bring up this like, other yeah, read from the read from the email. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, so this has the, like this is not about FGM separately. So my my friend Max, not the host, he has lived most of the past four years in South Sudan, and he does uh, relief work in South Sudan and in Somalia, and Uganda, and in very like off the beaten path type of places. And so I'm not endorsing this opinion, but I think it's a really interesting thing when we're talking about bodies and agency and like keeping the whole body intact versus not. So here's what he wrote. Uh, I saw a lot of ritual scarification in South Sudan. It's not as common anymore as tribal conflicts are increasingly heated and as the modern world moves in more. But I admire it. Sometimes it was more aesthetically pleasing than others, but I respect how it displays a sense of kinship and I would expect the act of both receiving and giving it strengthens communal trust in the face of pain, something that seems critical when living in such a harsh environment. So that was his take on ritual scarification. The only thing I'd add to that is like Seal, the singer. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like his ritually scarified face, right? Yeah, I have a good friend from he he was born in Togo and was adopted and moved here at a very young age. But he, he has very slight scarification on his cheeks i i mean i think that he values it i think he like i think he 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 appreciates it still it's not something that um it's not it's like much less noticeable than you would say with like seal um or other cases but yeah i mean there there are all sorts of body modifications that like mark you as being a part of a certain community um and i think that people do I think that people generally think that those are okay as long as they're not like too. There are certain forms of it that were like considered totally out there, like you know, like um, the elongation of the head, which is what something that used to flat head flattening, which used to be like a fairly common, not fairly common, mm. but like if like in what part it was of the widespread, world? like in different parts of the world, um, and it was considered aesthetically pleasing. But it, I think, it, like, by basically imperialists, it was considered totally crazy, and it was um, more or less eradicated. I think it doesn't exist anymore. There's also the, like, the, the zabiba, or prayer mark, that um, some, like, devout Muslim men have on their forehead from continued, like, repeated in contact with the prayer rug or the prayer mat, 
will produce this kind of like depression or, you know, kind of becomes almost like a scar, um, like in the upper center of the forehead. Mm. Um, as like a thing of devotion. And like, I think that it's like you can pray five times a day without getting it. So I think that the dudes who have it, it's like kind of a thing. Yeah. And like Shia Muslims have on, um, I think it's Ashura. Is, 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 there's a holiday that co- commemorates when like Hassan and Hussein were killed in battle. And there's like a lot of scarring or self, they slash their foreheads. Just a mm-hmm. self-flagellation. Self-flagellation. Yeah, as they say. And so like, I'm not, I'm not like saying thumbs up or thumbs down on, on any of those things. I'm, well, like, I guess I'll, I'll go on the record and, and go out on a limb and go thumbs down on fen- female genital mutilation. But as far as like scarification and, you know, and I know some of the issues that get raised with that, right. You're talking about your friend. It was done to him. You're saying as a young boy is, is again, these questions of like, well, if you're not fully, if you're not an adult, but this is a norm in your community, where does like your agency as a person come in uh, versus like the, the kind of community rights yeah. Yeah. And I think that like that, that a lot of these um, body modifications are like part of yeah, like initiation rights or rites of passage, mm-hmm. um, which through which you, you go through trials um, in order to prove yourself in order to like move on to the next stage of your life within this community. And it involves suffering so that you can prove your like ability to take it. Um, and your and your qualities and I think that that might seem weird to people because it's like so embodied but like the rites of passage that we go through as like you know late capitalist liberal subjects we just subject like, ourselves to like levels of anxiety that like yeah, homo sapiens exactly. have never no, exactly before. it's like you went through you know you took your SATs you went through so much stress you were crying and you know thinking that you were gonna uh, have a terrible score uh, you were worried that you were going to be a failure, but you pushed through, um, and that's like what makes you into an adult, right? I was just going to say, I mean, it, it is interesting that I like my funny example was going to be braces, <laughs> this like social torture and like physical torture of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. But um, my serious example is that like again, I'm not like getting behind this, but like. In the West, there, where where in the secular West, where there's like supposed to be a complete taboo on on like bodily harm, there you know there is people certain whether we, we like pathologize these as being psychological, I don't know what you'd call it like bad psychological cases or whatever. But people you know there's cutting you know there's like obviously there's this uh, seemingly increase in 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 self harm among teens, yeah. And I guess all that is to say that like. I'm not comparing that to circumcision, but I'm just saying like we have not managed to create any society on earth where people are not driven in some way to exercise control over pain by inflicting um, some like limited amount of pain on their mm-hmm. own bodies. That's the thing mm-hmm. we do. I think we do it through tattoos. We do it through piercings and, and some people it, it goes further and like and we pathologize some of them and we don't pathologize others. But it's a thing. It's a very strong impulse. And there's probably some deeper reasons that it's a strong impulse that are worth maybe not rejecting out of hand, um, or at least worth exploring the causes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if any kids are listening, don't do these things to yourselves. But (laughs) don't say I said that's okay. But just like one last point about all that stuff. Yeah. I forgot. 
Sorry, that's okay. Last <laughs> <It's> night. okay. <laughs> but hey, transi- transitional point. You know what book I've been reading over the past week or so? It's probably an academic book because I feel like you've been, ever since you quit academia, you've been killing it with your academic reading. I've been reading Moby Dick. Oh, I'm not surprised. This is and like the fourth time. Because like, I was thinking of it because we were talking about body modification and tattoos. And like I was just reading, like I'm just reading the very beginning of it. Um, and I was thinking about Queequeg um, and the, his introduction to Ishmael, who like the first thing he notices about him is his tattoos, um, which mark him as, you know, a savage and cannibal from the uncivilized, you know, Pacific Islands. Right. Hmm. That book, Moby Dick, is one of the central books of the Western canon, canon. which is what we're here to talk about tonight. Um, you should get for the audio sample for the transition. There's like, I, maybe I can send it to you, like a Lil Wayne song where they're just like, canon, canon. <laughs> canon. Yeah, so we're talking about canons, and uh, I do want to mention... Transition. Canon. What like, so, so what is the canon of literature? What does it mean Maybe you could define that to me. I was just looking. <laughs> oh. it up. So it's not the cannon. It's not the can. Like a, it's not a gun. So this is one one N cannon, not two ends cannon. And apparently, I looked it up. It derives from a Greek word, which is basically like cannon. I don't know. It's K A N O N if you transliterate it, and it and that word translates to like rod or measuring stick. Hmm. So it's like a standard of if you meet a certain standard then you're in the canon but how would you like define what the canon is yeah well so i mean that's it's like a it's an enormous explosive topic in in my field of comparative literature kind of in the humanities in general but at the most narrow definition we could say are the set of texts that are viewed as being kind of sacrosanct and the, the mastery of them, or at least familiarity and, and fluency in those texts, that is, it's also, to go back to the other thing, like a mark of uh, a rite of passage, that hmm. uh, a person becomes developed or, or, or civilized or lettered, you know, lettered by um, their familiarity with the canon. And it, they tend to be texts that have been viewed as canonical. Like everything in the canon like refers back to previous parts of the canon. Mm. And the last limited definition is like it, the canon wasn't, I, I mean, I think this term was operative when the Catholics and, and Willow has a lot to say about this too. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, she agrees um, with you. Or actually she, she disagrees. She's like, yeah, I think she's, the, she's, the canon is bullshit. She's trying it's to interrupt. Dead she's white like man. trying to get in there. And it's like, Willow, yeah. <laughs> listen, I'm going to make my point and then you can say whatever you want. Yeah. But when they were deciding what books go in the Bible, right, that was a, a process of canonization. Mm. You know, what books are, you know, stick in a permanent way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a collection of books that are, I think that what, what's also important is that they, they, by their inclusion in this collection of standard, you know, celebrated books, they also, the idea is that they speak to something universal. So like if you read them, you can get something from them no matter what. Like they speak universal truths. You know what I mean? They're timeless. Yeah, yeah. And a, a, a thing I was reading was this this article which I sent to you. And it's funny. So I was like assigned it in, in a class that I was auditing a few years ago. And I didn't read it at the time. And then I started reading it to prepare for this episode. And it was like super on point. And I was thinking, 
oh, this must have been written like, you know, in the two, in the 2010s. It, it almost seemed like a post-Trump thing, but I know I was assigned it before Trump. But, you know, it was by John Gilroy. Sorry, it wasn't an article. It was a book, I should say, mm. um, about uh, canon formation. And the thing that he mentioned is that actually the use of the word canon is relatively new because um, the, the word that they would use before would be classics. Like this work is classical, not canonical. Yeah, yeah. And he goes into discussing the, the differences there. But I mean, I feel like there's, we could do some more table setting because it's how we set this, how you set the table of the canon, I feel like it's very formative to how the rest of the discussion goes. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you take, uh, so, so we're, we're going to focus on literature tonight, I think, or today. We're recording at night, but you might be listening at any time of the day. So we're focusing on literature. There is, There are canons for like works of political philosophy as well. But yeah, the idea of a canon is like that if you want to know, if you want to be an expert in literature, then you need to read this collection of books because they have some value that uh, they stand out. They're better than the rest. Um, so it's like a relativistic thing too. It's like it's it's compared to the rest of literature. Like everything else is kind of like you can take it or leave it. Um, a big uh, like a, a but these are like thing. a must. Yeah, yeah. It's a common thing to uh, 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 kind of comparative is to say that you're either canonical or you're archival. So you're in the archive mm. if you're not in the canon. So the canon is kind of like present in a way. Right. And that's what I that's what it goes back to, like this idea of universality or timelessness, like the archive, the archival books, like you can learn something about the time or place in which certain works were produced and they can have some some sort of value in that way. But these works that are canonical transcend that and they're present in everyone's life. So like everyone reads Hamlet. Right. It's like, you well, know, not right anymore. Yeah, right, right. But it's, it's but the point is, it's supposed to be like part of the air we breathe. It's a, it's a constitutive element of our culture. Yes. Oh, man. And that's such a... I, just, I literally just put like my hand on my heart in that, you know, affect of, of you've evoked my sympathies. <laughs> yeah. Constitutive of the culture. I think that that's one of the, the, the big debates that off the bat, you know, kind of the, the... I feel like the normative reaction at this point is an anti-canonical reaction. And it, it's like, a who are you or who are all these people, these elites, these old dead white men or like fill in your antagonist? Who are all these people to tell me like what I should and should not read? And as if you're saying that this is the best and the other stuff isn't as good. But beyond being the best or not, I think an important thing is that because with certain works like um, Shakespeare over the past 400 years, like Plato over the past 2000 years, Except for that there's like a few hundred where they didn't have <laughs> they him. Didn't, they didn't have Around him, the late end, the turn of the millennia. But like, whatever. Aristotle, certainly. Because these have been read generation after generation and were formative to the development of the minds of everyone in, in the generations, in the intervening generations, we have inherited ways of thinking about the world, things that we take to be natural and instinctive that are culturally specific to the values that have been inculcated by our canon. Mm. And so in order to understand those values and even deconstruct those values, you sort of have to look at, in a way, it's like looking at the DNA uh, sequencing of 
thought. And so, yes. I mean, I, I'm just, yes, I, but yeah. some people would say, you know, this is just like this totally navel gazing thing where it's just is navel gazing the critique. I feel like the okay, we'll go on. Well, no, I think that like the uh, what critics would say is that it's just been successive generations of like white privileged men who are talking about how. Um, Shakespeare is constitutive of our culture and we're developing that we're his we're Shakespeare's successors by like continuing this Western tradition of literature mm-hmm. uh, with with these huge blind spots about all the elements of human experience that they're ignoring right the, the, because you know, okay, the yeah. Idea, yeah the idea is like this literature is capturing the essence of, of what it means to be a human and they're ignoring it. But but I think that we should back up a little bit and like talk about why it is that we're talking about this tonight. And, okay, yeah. um, and then that way we can get into some of the things we read. And, and then and also like go through kind of like bring up the some of the critiques that are common and then have absolutely. our say, have our way yeah. with them. Yeah. So I I think I suggested talking about this, even though you're the one who's much more the expert in this area, because I had just noticed on Twitter this like weird trend of people complaining about the canon and like just and this has been something that obviously is like it's been in the kind of background noise for ages, like people talking about, for example, like David Foster Wallace is probably the most recent writer who has been elevated in a certain sense to like canonical status um and you can like debate whether he deserves his place there Mm. um or not but there's been like backlash against him and this idea this like sense starting to arise that like interest in the can't like a like a basically a reaction against the canon I'll put it that way. Like, that's the most simplest way of, of talking about it. And I realized, like, I noticed all these, all this conversation, like chatter on Twitter about it. And I realized that there was this woman, um, Dana Schwartz, who had a book come out this month, which is called The White Man's Guide to White Male Writers of the Western Canon. So she's like a comedy writer who apparently like spent some time in an MFA program and had a very negative experience there because she... It's like the best way to... If you have a normal experience in an MFA program, I feel like that's like worst for your career prospects. Yeah, probably. So she wrote a book, like, so she started a like parody Twitter account called Guy in Your MFA. And it's basically making fun of a pretentious like literature guy David Foster Wallace reading Asshole, who is probably a bad boyfriend and smokes rolled cigarettes and stuff like that. Uh And so like, I'm going to read some copy. I'll I'll just read some copy. So like this is, so she wrote a book uh, talking about, you know, white male writers of the Western canon. And here's some copy like describing the book from goodreads.com. So here it goes. Who better than that unjustifiably overconfident guy in your MFA to mansplain the most important, aka white male, writers of Western literature. You can't miss him, riding the L, writing furiously in his moleskin notebook, or defying the wind by hand-rolling a cigarette outside a Williamsburg coffee shop. He's read Infinite Jest nine and a half times. Have you? <laughs> so, <laughs> I could read more, but like, 
The point is, is I find it very strange that it's like a collection of signifiers about like the fucking hipster meme, like meme from basically 10 years ago. Like this is basically a decade old, this kind of satire of this type. Yeah. Be- beyond that. Like that would have been really funny when we were in college. Is it's like, and I'm not saying that as a knock, like is all that shit still going on, that, you know? Not that I know of. I mean, is that really a type still? I mean, not that I the rolled cigarettes and the David Foster Wallace. Yeah, I mean, I thought also David Foster Wallace has been like vigorously canceled. Well, that's a that's a discussion for another night. (laughs) (laughs) It's that big. It's that Um, big. Wow. I've never read. I mean, I haven't read. I haven't read a single word from Infinite Jest, so I don't have anything to say about that. But the point is, this kind of like snarky dismissal of the canon is something that I noticed happening a whole lot online from people, and I think that it was like kind of came to a head around the promotional push for this book. But what's really interesting about this specific work of like canon criticism is that like. It's associated with this hipster figure, um, which I found quite odd, like because she ends up writing about, you know, all these members of the canon. We can uh, I can look into the hold on. I'm looking at the um, who the hipster figure uh, props up. Yeah, but it's like, you know, but it's like Shakespeare, Milton, Samuel Johnson, Gerrita, Lord Byron, Dickens. No one knows shit about any of these fucking people anymore. Hipsters. I remember. So like I remember. We knew some literature hipsters when we were in college. We went to a college where they taught the canon, by the way. Everyone had to read. um, Yeah, we should talk about that in in fullness. So let's bracket that and go back to it. Yeah, but the hipsters, and I'm thinking of one specific guy. I remember him at our suite senior year being like, because of the invention of modern poetics, like you don't have to read any classical 19th century or earlier poets. And I had no opinion on this because I wasn't a, a literature guy, yeah. but but like it was like that's what hipsters say. They're not like you need to read Thoreau to be a fully shaped human being, right? That's a very odd like angle for criticizing the canon, but it gets to the basic point of like what is a valid criticism of the canon, which is that it's like almost entirely made up of white men. Yeah. Okay. So. Maybe I'm going to say some things about that critique. Yes. And then maybe we'll talk about the core. How's that sound? Yeah. And I would say, like, I also read, we also read a a work, um, an essay from The Outline by Brandy Jensen, who is like an ex, you know, a, a refugee from academia as well. And she was just complaining about this whole discourse, this whole anti-canon discourse. And she, and she was saying, basically, like, I, I agree with her point, which is like, yes, it is legitimate to criticize the canon for not being inclusive. But like people have been criticizing the canon for not being inclusive for 30 years. And they've been doing the work of like making it more inclusive. And if you just like pay attention and accept that like this work is happening and like embrace a more inclusive canon why can't we just do that instead of like pretending which this book does that like all this shit is actually overrated you know like she basically writes these kind of snarky dismissals of pretty much everyone in the western canon including shakespeare she's like oh like hamlet is let me let me read like let me read some copy from this book this is the description of hamlet a 30 year old college student mopes around his childhood home after his dad dies rolling his eyes at his high school girlfriend and snapping at his mom and his stepfather, who happens to be his uncle. I understand that, like, she has a point 
that the canon is made up of white men and that's bullshit, even though it isn't anymore. But like, that doesn't mean that Hamlet isn't good and should just be like mocked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I want to read this like funny. Well, yeah. Okay. So there's the quality. I'm, I'm just getting some issues on the board. We got the quality issue, the white male issue, the constitutive of our thought issue. And so I, I, I want to read something from that uh, just as a, a funny thing from the outline piece by Brandy Jenkins that you were saying. I just had two quotes that I highlighted. So she says, um, I dare you to look me in the face and tell me our culture exalts Lord Byron over J.K. Rowling. Like, yeah, totally. Absolutely, yes. And I'm sorry you had a mean teacher and not one of the ones who tells you that pop lyrics are poetry, pop music lyrics are poetry, but if it makes you feel any better, she or he is probably living in penury now if they're still alive at all. <laughs> Which is like, I remember when I first started this and I like have yet to like send these angry links, I had a friend or two like be like, oh, you know, pretentious academics, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, woe is you. And it's like, well, yeah, woe is us. We're like one of the most undercompensated like sectors of the workforce, especially for like given like how much labor we, we put in and value we put in, you know, universities charge an abundant amount of money for the, our services and yeah. our compensation is uh, meager. So, but there is, I think this abiding, maybe you, I'll start here. And there's an anti-intellectualism in, in the, in that book that I was quoting earlier uh, by the Gil, Gilroy, Mm. Gilfoyles on Silicon Valley. Um, the book that I was quoting earlier is called Cultural Capital. And the cover of the book actually has a picture of the Butler Library, like Columbia's main, main library. And yeah. so approaching that point, getting closer. But he says that there's something distinctly American here at work in, in all of our pol- uh, discussions about the canon. And there is that there's a strain of um, anti-elitism it goes to the very beginning of American social and political life. It's even kind of in the very like posturing of how the Americans place themselves relative to the king. Like, you don't know what's best for us. You're a remote, abstract authority. And the only and those who know what's best for us are, are we ourselves and don't tell us what to do. And, you know, that's obviously, I think, been more utilized by the political right in the mm. culture wars in recent decades. Um, you know, certainly it's m- maybe the most used weapon in Trump's arsenal is the, is, is anti-elitism. Not, and it's not just anti-intellectualism. It's not just against people who think. It's knocking them down. First of all, you say that anyone who associates themselves with the type of works that we would call the canon believes themselves to be an elite, but I believe that they're... N- that elites are bullshit, and I'm here to knock down these elites. So you have to assert their elitism, which they may or may not assert themselves, and expose it, and then pull it down. And so I think it's really important to trace that because it doesn't just happen on the on the right, and but uh, it may help yeah, well, people it on the left. Just happen on the right because now it's happening on the online woke left, where people. Are, are associating that kind of elitism that conservatives used to or still do well, not know, point to liberalism. And, and these people are saying, like like Dana Schwartz, for example, she's, oh, saying, okay, like, she's associating canon floggers with the arrogance of the hipster pretentious dude. 
You know what I mean? Okay, As opposed yeah. to Trump uh, and Republicans in general associating with like the urban coastal liberal elite. Well, well, I mean, the hipster dude is a is a member of the urban coastal. Right. But it's like also elite. this. But there's this also uh, there's this element of like contempt for them that comes where it's like saying, well, these guys are like layabouts. They're like not economically productive. OK, that's the navel gazing part. Yeah. 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 OK. Definitely. I think that, so I want to like address some more. Okay. So let's, let's get to Columbia because I'm, I'm just foaming at the mouth to like tear some of these arguments apart. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I want to, could we take a quick, quick, like uh, beverage break really Oh quick, yeah. Good idea. And I then I'll, I'll be right back. Okay. All right. So cool. you wanted to talk about Columbia university in the city of New, of York. New York, our <laughs> beloved alma mater in the nation of New York. In the nation of New York, in the state of New York. Peace, New York be upon New York. Yeah, I'd be curious what you have to say about this. So, like, trigger warning, like, I, you know, we're not, we don't think we're cooler that we went there in, like, in, any endorsements of Columbia that follow herewith are specific to certain experiences, not to, like, saying it's the better university. Uh, except for, like, I'll, I'll, I'll go out on public and say, like, it's better than Penn. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's it. That's it. But so at it's Columbia, a second tier is a second tier Ivy League school. It's not as good as Harvard, <laughs> Yale, or Princeton. It's the same as Brown. It's better than Penn, and oh, it's man. much better this than Dartmouth. And so much Cornell. trouble. Yeah, that's the rankings, and it's not, also not as good as Stanford. Just want to say with the year or that MIT. we. The year that we got in, I hope you cut this, we were the second most selective school as far as admissions behind Princeton. We went to the school at the peak of selectivity. Um, enrollment and selectivity. So, you know, you have to listen to us. And, you know, I'm going to be sitting there in my tweed jacket in my with my hand-rolled cigarettes talking about DFW. Sorry, Dana. And I'm I'm sitting here with, like, the, the skull of um, my enemies drinking wine that belonged to... Plato out of it. So, uh, so like the again, I was talking about this this book, which is actually by a professor at NYU, uh, John Gilroy. Gilroy, um, that it, on the cover is a picture of our library, and the reason that that's the picture is because chiseled into the frieze above the Ionian columns, if I'm looking at this correctly, um, okay. are the names. Yeah, little scrolls on those on the, scrolls on the tops on the capitals. Yeah, on the capitals is like we know Harad- all the we know all the architectural elements, the pediment, freaking uh, the nave, etc. We had to learn all this shit, and so they have the names of the authors, which we have to read in these year-long intensive seminars um, that you take as a freshman. You do a year of the classics, or they call uh, I don't know, literary humanities, which is the you know greatest hits of Western literature sophomore year you do they call it contemporary civilization but it's kind of the greatest hits of like political thought or yeah political philosophy so atop the library is chiseled herodotus sophocles plato aristotle demosthenes who actually we i didn't read um <laughs> cicero whatever and and uh, there's been various times also that feminist protesters have put up banners with classics of sappho I'm looking at this one banner, uh, uh, Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz, the Mexican nun, Bronte, they don't specify which one, Dickinson, Wolf, um, because, you know, that's always been 
a hot button that like this monumental piece of architecture that's in this library, which is where virtually everyone studies because it's open 24 hours, has the names of these mostly like dead Greek white guys. And so we read, but hold on, but like we read Wollstonecraft, we read, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, Beauvoir and I read, we read McKinnon too. Yeah. We, and we, we read Wolf, like the, the, and that's another thing, you know, when we talk about the canon, are we only talking about the old timey stuff in, in the class that Max and I had to take and, and they, they revise it, you know, from time to time, but it starts with the ancient Greeks and it ends with the beginning, roughly beginning, middle of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you, I mean, and certainly we read Sappho because she did write in that period. And if you believe Harold Bloom, a lot of the Hebrew Bible may have been written by a woman. Mm-hmm. But when women begin to participate good in... Good for her. It's a great work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's not like w- once women start to participate in, in like the formation of literary canons that they're still like, no, don't read them. You know, obviously they're included then. But so everyone, everyone who goes to Columbia like has either applied because they're okay with this or they want this or then some people like are kicking and screaming and like I I wanted to go here for other reasons but like why do they make us do this and it's a thing that it's kind of like a thing that you constantly debate especially your freshman and sophomore years Um, it's also a very unifying thing because you go to the library and invariably anyone in your grade who's a thousand people you know this week they're reading Kant and next week they're going to be reading Hegel and like you see the books and you have this, you know, it's like supposed to be character building and it creates a common culture, but it also becomes the site of a lot of the the shit that people talk about the canon. You're already kind of having those conversations too off the bat. So I want to like see the playing field to you before I say something more specific about like complet. Well, okay. So I have a few things to say about that. First of all, I would say that the reason I wanted to go to Columbia and it was just the school I wanted to go to was mainly because of the core curriculum. So I, I, I thought that was cool. I was attracted to it. I was a teenager. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But I liked doing the core curriculum. I enjoyed it. Secondly, what would I say? That what's interesting is that although it was an institution that celebrated this great book's curriculum, it was also the center of post-colonial thought because of the legacy of Edward Said, right? So like the most kind of potent and convincing critique of Western self-satisfaction you know what i mean yeah um so it was like a ferment where you like get kind of both sides in it in their most like distilled versions but i but i felt that the pro-canon side had had become like pretty attenuated when we were when we were students there because i remember at our graduation the president Bollinger, um, president of our university, yes, president of Columbia University, Bollinger, like who's a you know First Amendment lawyer and everything. He gave a speech at our at our graduation, which talked about like it's very much the party line of of the justification of the core curriculum's like continued existence in this kind of post-colonial multicultural moment. And his point was that reading these books teach you how to think critically 
which might be true, but it's very like instrumentalized. So it's basically like, well, if you learn how to, you like you encounter, it'll make you a di- good lawyer. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly that. Right. It'll make you a good like junior analyst at. So encounter. So so your encounter with a difficult text from a different culture than yours, um, that's like perhaps challenging in certain ways, like trains you to basically like work hard and like apply yourself to like read and understand it. And that's going to add value to you as like a prospective employee or worker laborer in in this like information economy in the elite exactly right and it also so 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 it's 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 that and then the second thing that everyone always says like oh it gives you something to talk about a cocktail party so it gives you polish and like the ability to fit in um within the elite class and that's the biggest lie ever because if you want first of all who has cocktail parties second of all like hate you no people people fucking hate you you. it's never been a positive experience for me since i like left (laughs) the gates of morningside heights i've never brought up anything i learned in the core curriculum and had it go well (laughs) yeah um so 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 you know what i mean so like the the point is that like the defense of the canon does like at this point that isn't defense. even um, isn't even gesturing towards like the idea of it being constitutive of our culture. That's like that's like dead and buried. It's like basically this is going to add value to you as as a person. So it's been completely instrumentalized. And the, and the problem is like, well, yeah, but then if this is just training you, if this is just training you by, by, by getting you to read difficult texts, then it could be any kind of text. You could read the great books of the Islamic tradition or the East Asian tradition just we, as we, easily. Right. Which but it's like, it, it is like this, but it is like this, this polish, this idea of like, this is going to gain you entry into the elite class by having these references in your back pocket is like literally the only thing. And that's like very distasteful. You know, it's not a very attractive selling point. And, and, and dated. Yeah. So c- can I say a few things? Go um, for it. Yeah. So like, I'm going to like make my points by way, by way of anecdotes. To, to build on what you're saying, you know, I came in there, I'll, I'll skip like how I felt about the core as, as requirements. But I remember meeting, there was one of those like, pick your major. And there was this young woman who was a senior who had also been the woman who like trained me at the new, the college newspaper. She was like the new staff trainer editor. Mm-hmm. And she was really, really sweet. But I like, I, I had conceived of myself as disagreeing with her politics. I thought she was kind of like knee jerk left. And at that time, I thought I'm not knee jerk left. And she was like, you should major in comparative literature. We're like English, but we are like, we bring in all these like Marxist perspectives and, and feminist and uh, post-colonial and psychoanalysis. And I'm like, oh, like, shouldn't we just be reading books for, like, what they mean? Like, why do we have to, like, put them through? This is, like, I I completely don't think this anymore, but, like, as a freshman before I was exposed to it, I was like, why are people adding... Apparently, this is what Susan Sontag's point was, too. But, like, why are people adding these frameworks that, like, before they even read the book, they're like, it's all penises. Like, why don't they just read the book and then see, like, what it means, you know? Yeah, putting it through, a, like, a theoretical grinder and uh, getting the output. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, c- comparative literature, whatever that is, I don't want any of it. And so here <laughs> we are now. I have a doctorate in it. And I've spent the last 
15 years learning it. So Maggie won. Uh, I'll leave her <laughs> last name out too. But then when I was um, going to take this, the, the greatest hits of the political philosophy, which it's kind of like all the texts you're reading are like, you know, what's justice? What's a good life? And starts with Plato's Republic and goes to, for us, we ended with Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas, which was like an anti-war book she wrote. Really? And we read a bunch of, we read a few 20th century books, like more Yeah, than we that, read like, like Freud yeah. and yeah, she was the last one, but not the only 20th century one. But um, so the first week of that class, I was in this one teacher's class and I hated him. He was like so pretentious and he was like the child of academics, which I find Mm. they don't always be nice at life. Joking. But (laughs) there was another student. No, they suck. They suck. They They suck. suck. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so if they go into it themselves, you know, so there was this other student and she said, I'm here. What I want to get out of this class is to see. Like, it's like an x-ray of how we think. We, we're we all living, like, above the surface, living our lives, thinking we have these thoughts. But all these thoughts, you know, are coming from, there's an underneath or an inside that we n- n- most people don't ever have the opportunity to look at it and critically examine it. And that's what I want to see in these texts. And, and I remember someone else said, it's not about the thoughts of the writers, it's about the leaps of thought, like how we go from idealism to empiricism, you know, or you know, stuff like that. And my, so I transferred out of that one teacher's class the first week, and they said uh, at the transfer office, they're like, oh, we're going to put you in this other guy's class. This guy's name I will cite because... I have to, like, with all my heart, say that this class changed my life and for the better, and it just added so much richness to my life. I would say the lion's share, if not more, the credit goes to this teacher, and his name is Roosevelt Montas, and he, if I'm remembering right, like, so he was from the Dominican Republic. His dad quit school in fourth grade. His mom quit in, like, eighth grade. They moved to New York. His parents got divorced. They moved to New York when he was a kid. This guy did not grow up, like, at the cocktail parties, like, And Mm -hmm. he, you know, taught these canonical texts with just so much humanity. And and that's the thing that I began to, and he had been a complete PhD. He had just finished at that time. And that's what I began to learn that in complete, in this, in the discipline, the Saeed and his heirs and his colleagues, it wasn't about, oh, like these are all like white imperialist fuckers, like fuck them, let's not read it. It's like, the world was, we live in a globalized world and the global order was, is an artifact of Western culture. And therefore, if you cannot critique it unless you understand the backbone of Western culture. It's the most like empowering practice you can have toward critique. You know? Yeah, but, but then when, once you understand them, like isn't one aspect of the fight against, like so their ideas shape the world that we live in the Western canon, right? They're all these imperialists. They have created the world in their image. But then once you understand them, isn't part of the fight against them to like decolonialize the curriculum, so to speak, and like get get rid of them and like overthrow them? That's, I mean, that's a huge like division in the, I'd say in the like the side follower world between post-colonial and decolonial. I I think if you read him very clearly, no. I mean, you know, he's obsessed with Conrad, you know, it's see, see the holes, see the, see their blind spots, you know, read Jane Austen and you see that she has blind spots toward the colonial project, you know, toward race in the Caribbean and stuff. But you don't, the point isn't to stop reading them, you know, it's just to not only adapt their viewpoint myopically, 
you know? But yeah. my point here is like, so my PhD is in comparative literature, but my, the languages I study are Hebrew and Arabic. You cannot study Arabic literature without studying the Western canon because all the modern Arabic poets were obsessed with and shaped by T.S. Eliot. And T.S. Eliot was obsessed with and shaped by the canon. He's like the most canonical of the modernist poets. Um, and, and, and it's the same in Hebrew with like French and Russian symbolism. In many of the peripheral or non-Western traditions, like if you are ignorant of the Western canon, you won't understand their dialogue. They're speaking back against it. And, and kind of like canon acquisition, I, I would basically say, for also on the political side, like a lot of the African leaders who were the first to declare independence, like Senghor in, in Senegal, or if you want to go with like in South Asia, like Nehru, you know, Gandhi, right, who studied at Oxford, they use these texts to form their own worth and autonomy of their national cultures, you yeah, know? No, I think that I, actually my master's thesis in history was about a similar thing where it was about a generation of Hungarian poets and writers, but also like sociologists and political thinkers who conceived of themselves as Eastern in some way because they were Hungarian, we're not Western, we're backwards, but like <laughs> oriented towards the West. So they like all kind of gathered around this this literary journal called Mugat, which is called which is the Hungarian word for West. And they and they saw that they, they thought of themselves they they wanted to have some kind of identity which is like we are have this specificness to us which is like Easternness. We are Eastern. Uh, we we're like Asiatic. We we came we're like these descendants of nomads who came from the steppe. But we're all looking towards the West and like digesting basically like you know french like symbolist poetry and stuff and like trying to be western and like one one great example of that is like lukacs george lukacs who like became you know he he was a, a hungarian you know marxist thinker who became more western than westerners in a sense but but used his like outsider perspective to do that so yeah basically like my point is that that that's true in all sorts of contexts that like people are you know in in this period um which like informs the post-colonial like decolonial movement so much like there's always this reference to to like the established canon whether you feel like ambivalent toward it or not or antagonistic or yeah and, and, and so that's and that gets to another point uh which is um the way that gil never gonna get it um let's call him gilfoyle gilfoyle great gil you know great supporting character in silicon valley and thinker on the canon on yeah. the canon gilroy um is integrationist versus secessionist approaches okay so right now and he's writing in 93 right now this is at a fever pitch of we're in a sort of secessionist moment the idea isn't let's expand the canon the idea well i mean there, there's some of that but i think that it's much more everyone should have a, like a center for blank studies and, and, and i'm not just like here to take a piss on other identities like every school has a center for israel studies and a center for jewish studies and it's like because neither one agrees that like that they're sufficient and by the way i hope they all give me jobs that's where i'm applying for my jobs right. um hire this man hire this man the center for my identity studies 
ification of of the university, which is a, a cultural studies, that sort of says, if this thing doesn't speak to me, you know, I don't see myself in that canon because of my race or my religion or whatever. That's not my history. Fuck that. I want to learn my history. That's one move. And the other move is to say, like, at the very beginning of uh, classical Greek literature, you have Sappho, who is a woman. Like, we don't have to, if we just look in, in the right places, we see that many of our notions of this only being male or only being, you know, pick your exclusive denominator uh, were, were not true. We need to expand our historical imagination to, like, see where the marginal voices were. That That's, like, kind of easier to do in the last few centuries the, the further you go back you know like listen if you want to find like a good jewish canonical author in the in the canon of western philosophy until you hit the 19th century until you get moses Mendelssohn, you're not gonna have one mm. right because like not only by the way you're not even gonna have a philosopher who wasn't anti-semitic you know and i don't know that's something that like i've not really ever had a problem with i'm like yeah they came from a different kind of a world so I think like the canon, it's like, you know, expand it where possible. But again, it's not this sense of the canon to me isn't the canon as the qualitatively best things. It's the canon as the x-ray of the of the spine or the, you know, or the like archaeology of the West and its expansion um, into a form of a global civilization. And I'm going to say one more thing about privilege, if I may. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, you know, people could be angry at the canon because it represents the privileged, you know, those who had elites. And you don't have to go all the way back to say that Plato and Aristotle were elites. You can even, you know, Lord Byron was an elite. These are all aristocrats. These are all people who had, like, money and time on their hands. And Yeah, Plato owned slaves. Like, he's canceled. Um, so like, and everyone else lived under the boot of these people and, and certainly, you know, the, the patriarchal aspect, you know, that these are people who didn't view women as equal, but take literature out of it. And just like most of the history of sapiens, homo sapiens are people who lived in non-egalitarian arrangements, period, you know, not just with gender, but in every respect. And what I would say about that with the canon is that you can reject a political order without discounting the worth of its art. So I know right now everyone's yeah, like... Yeah, but can I, can, I, can I cut in here? I think that the yeah, problem is, is that the idea of canonicity, it entails this universality, right? The timelessness that I was talking about earlier. So, so the idea is like, well, Shakespeare speaks to the you know, universal human condition, whereas... Mm-hmm. Someone like Chinua Achebe is like speaking to the African condition. Yeah, you know what I mean. That, and that's, that's like be, that, that's yeah. absolutely legitimate to like reject that and say like, hey, things fall apart is like actually just as human like it speaks to. But I mean, I think that like that's not that crazy of a statement and like i think most people already accept that like i read things fall apart when i was in middle school and like it what an elite education this boy had yeah no i yeah this was like well i could get into the well we'll talk about the 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 class i had in seventh grade where we read uh things fall apart some other time but well yeah i was reading like like um Books about like base like little league baseball players like teen fiction, <laughs> um, great Jewish baseball players. <laughs> we have that book, but it's not very long. 
Yeah. Um, no, no, but but well, let me just finish like the like round out yeah, that point, which is yeah, which yeah. is just to say like yeah, like there's a great like a, one of those books that blew my mind that right now is probably like duh to a lot of people, but was by a Kenyan um, literary critic who he now he's in exile. He's at UC, UC Irvine. He was jailed for a lot of years in Kenya. His name's Nguji Wationgo, and Nguji wrote um, Decolonizing the Mind, and he's sort of like you know, points out the problem of the British being in Kenya, telling like little boys and girls in Kenya that like they should imagine, that, like the only way to imagine human sensibility is through the characters of Jane Austen. But what he's saying is that we shouldn't stop reading Jane Austen, that rather bring Jane Austen to their world, you know? Mm. And I, I was looking for that quote, I can't find it, put it on a link. But what I'm saying about the reject a political order without discounting the worth, you know, or the beauty or whatever of its art, isn't to say that art isn't connected to politics. Of course, art informs politics, but it's not a one for one. Like politics is in the powers that we might look at a political order and say, ooh, we don't like the way that power works, draws on things beyond art. And there are parts of art that are beyond the political unsavoriness. And so I'll give you just a a few examples. Does anyone have a problem looking at the amazing jewelry and artifacts of, of, of King Tut, the King Tutankhamen, King Tutankhamen <laughs> exhibits, you know, that go around from time to time. No one, has, no one has a problem going to like Mayan temples in Mexico, right? Well, guess what? King Tut and the Mayans, pretty fucking hierarchical, pretty violent, pretty non-egalitarian. But we managed to make that separation and to say like, yeah, I'm going to appreciate the human achievement that went into building this temple, it doesn't necessarily mean I buy the beliefs of those people who built this temple or the purpose for which they used it. But but there's something to be learned from it. That's why we we go to it, you know, and that's why we like look at that jewelry, you know, it's not just like, oh, it's so it's so shiny, you know, but like, wow, the human mind and, and the human collect and human collectives working together have given us something to to think about, and it, it, it resounds back into our lives, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true, but I do think at the same time, like the same kinds of impulses about aesthetic judgment have been deployed in order to justify new and really awful forms of exploitation and domination, right? Well, where, give me where the West example. would say what what like the point is where the Westerners We have great books, plays, you don't, and so now you're yeah, our slaves. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But that but that is as valid of a point as like we have to cut this guy's head off or the harvest won't come. So what? That's what they thought. We don't think that. And we're not in danger of being infected by that thought. And if anything, like you know, coming, struggling with what aspects of this remain attractive to us. If you look at a pyramid and find it, uh, you go to Mayan pyramid, you're like, oh, it's fucking awesome. You should be struggling with, well, yes, this was also part of a, like a violent, you know, hierarchical slave having culture. And so what aspects of this monumentality can I relate to without being on board with that? And, you know, there's like, it, it, I'm not saying it's an easy engagement but just because someone said that this meant x doesn't mean that that's what it has to mean to you now hundreds of years later it seems it seems like there's two like two two separate issues one is what you're talking about which is like any kind any kind of art uh or piece of culture that we have access to 
is kind of embedded in a social system which inevitably was exploitative yeah hegemonic. Was exploitative hegemonic yes and then there's a second issue which is the western supremacist idea of well the west is clearly superior because we produced a mind like Shakespeare and like that's evidence for our superiority and that's why it's okay that we went to India and like built railroads but also created a famine that killed millions of people. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like for one thing I'd say like, I know like Saul Bellow said shit like that, but like I don't think anyone's saying that kind of shit anymore. And also like, but I mean, people that's... do, like Niall Ferguson, like that's the whole thing. Oh, well, it's like yeah, you ask on people, the right. ask people, yeah. yes, on the right. I mean, but like that still exists, right? It's like ask Tory voters uh, yeah. in England what they think about the, uh, the English, uh, the British Empire. Like that's what they think, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it still I, but, exists. So like that's that is something that is like worth fighting against. I do think that yeah. like the anti, but like, but I do think like it's true. Whoever needs like, to hear that, that, we should still be saying that to them. But yeah, I, yeah, but, yeah. I'm, but like I'm the anti, the anti-canon people tend to be like fighting against like liberals, right? So like they tend to be like saying that attacking the kind of blind spots of like well-meaning supposedly like liberal urban dwellers, like labor slash democratic voters so like it is like a little bit of a different the political dynamic is different yeah but i do think it's like valuable to to to, to point out that like uh, there is this right-wing chauvinism that's, that is that's va- still there yeah. yeah yeah i mean well that's why in, you know that's why expansion is important that's why like i'm you know i think the columbia solution but that's the whole that, point is like expansion has happened right and it is like on it is ongoing it's not it's it's, it's ongoing it's not complete and I think there's room for there's room for the I'm not as big a fan of like the secessionist like we all only study our own ethnicities studies but I do kind of like Columbia's solution I think in the 90s at some point was that you also have to take a year of major they call it major cultures like non-western cultures you get to pick like I did African Civ and I did Middle East and and South Asia but you could also do Latin America and East and East Asia Yeah I, I did right. Latin America a few courses yeah So you know, we should expand. We should expand ourselves to understand, like, there's different forms of genius. Like, the reason we think Shakespeare is a genius also has to do with certain forms of knowledge and art that, you know, are culturally specific to the West and, like, for reals. But, like, also, well, okay, I'll just leave that point there. I want to, like, really quick, just, like, just really quickly and simply and non-controversially talk about the Me Too aspect of all this stuff. Yeah, we got to get over this quickly. So just try not to say anything controversial because I want to talk about your last point. The, the capitalism thing. All I was going to say about Me Too is like, okay, Me Too, I think is, the, the question here is, you know, so you have authors from the canon who did, who were not so, um, you know, didn't do things that would be appropriate according to either our current standards or maybe like universal standards, What if we think that's uh, what we're arriving at. And and not just like people taking advantage of women, but like, Rousse, was it Rousseau like abandoned his children or, yeah, Rousseau abandoned his children. I think Descartes may have also abandoned his children, you know, and so on and so on. And what I would just say is that, like, a few different conversations, situating bad behavior in the question of, like, emulating bad behavior, and that we don't want to emulate, we don't want to put these people on a pedestal because we think that their behavior is unworthy of emulation, and their behavior, in fact, should be censured. And I think that one does have to be very careful, like, not to put people on pedestals who were doing things that we don't want people to do. But uh, like the the example to me that's 
condenses all this is Derek Walcott, Caribbean poet from Trinidad. And it's like, it's it's nearly impossible to teach post-colonial Anglophone literature without teaching Derek Walcott. And Derek Walcott had a lot of Me Too stuff. Like he did a lot of inappropriate, he had some significant record of inappropriate sexual relationships with, with younger women and students. But what I would just say is there's a way of engaging with the work of an artist, and this is similar to the previous point, in the in what it forms in, the, in its contribution to our culture, that, that you can do that engagement without saying this person is a worthy um, model of behavior. And I think that we have, tr- I really think that a part of our trouble with this, and it, it's kind of haunted me too, has been specifically because of Donald Trump, which is that there's this Trumpian equation that like, he has poor behavior, he has poor character, his values suck. And that all those that like behavior and character align with the political movement that you bring to the world, the value add or subtraction that you bring can be traced to your behavior. And yeah, yeah no, I, it happens all the time. I mean, like with 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 David Foster Wallace, he was, you he know, like he was abusive. I mean, he was he was abusive to Mary Carr in in yeah, quite horrendous ways. And because his membership in the canon is like still kind well, of I don't know if he's in the big... canon. I feel like he's in a canon, like a yeah. yeah. The but I mean, I do think canon. like you know the greats. So he's like this bubble. He's on the bubble, so to speak, in the NCAA <laughs> tournament. Um, Lingo of of the canon. So like, so the question is like, yeah, does his behavior? I mean, this is like it goes back to the the kind of really tiresome question of like, can you separate the art from the artist? Um, but then it gets connected with the idea of the Western canon as a kind of text of, of white supremacy and misogyny, sexism, heteronormativity, and, and all and the it, rest. It may be that, but like, I think we have, I mean, not in every case, but I think that like the way to deconstruct that is like through it, not by denying it. Yeah. I mean, like, here's another, there's a thing that there's a, a discourse on the right in the, in the American right wing about Martin Luther King, that he was a plagiarist and a serial adulterer, which apparently mm. those two things are like factually true. He had a lot of adultery, committed plagiarism. And the idea behind that, right, the reason that they're saying that on the right is because they want to delegitimize his contributions to history, to, to our like ways of thinking about ourselves. Right. And, and like, I just think we're on a slippery slope. Like, I'm not saying, like, we have to be like, thumbs up, like, David Foster Wallace. I'm glad you creeped out Mary Carr. Or Derek Walcott, who is... He didn't creep her out. He, like, pushed her out of a moving car, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Sorry, I wasn't trying to minimize it. Because I'm (laughs) I'm making fun of the opposite position. Not thumbs up Derek Walcott, who's who's not white, you know, Afro-Caribbean. I'm glad you, like, you know, molested all these younger students. It's not about, like, thumbs up to them at all. But what it is about is that trying to extract a contribution to the development of what we now have inherited uh, on the basis of behavior, especially sexual behavior, I think that those are sort of two, you know, where we stand on sexual behavior and then like, what is this thing that we've inherited that we call our culture, our civilization? Those are two different things. Like, even if I found out that Martin Luther King did way worse things than adultery, 
I wouldn't be like, okay, so let's just like not talk about all the other stuff he did because he's canceled. You know, that I don't think that'd be the most responsible way to deal with what the historical existence of Martin Luther King means, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. That was pretty quick. Maybe not uncontroversial, <laughs> but quick. Capitalism. You go into capitalism. You, you tell us that capitalism shit. I got some shit to say. I'll say it later about it. Well, the last okay, thing so I have a few things to say about this. So I, I do think that we're in a very interesting moment right now uh, having to do with the aesthetic judgment of art as compared or in in conversation with the demands of the market and like the commoditization of art. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the debate that's been happening over the past few months over like uh, Marvel movies mm-hmm. um, with uh, like Martin Scorsese and then like a whole number of other filmmakers and actors and everything criticizing superhero movies for being kind of like infantile, uh, not cinema, meaning what, when you say not cinema, that means it's not art. It's, it doesn't deserve um, it, or it doesn't merit inclusion and inclusion or, in, or, or, or in like elevation kind of above other peer works. Yeah. And so when Scorsese did said that Kevin Feige, the kind of like head honcho at Marvel, the producer of all the Marvel films was like, oh, well, you know, he doesn't think that Black Panther directed by Ryan Coogler, who's like a black man, is good enough. Well, as opposed to the other like 55 Marvel movies. (laughs) So or or like Captain Marvel, like this would this movie starring a female. So like implying that Martin Scorsese was being like problematic by dismissing these female led person of color created works of art. And then secondly, I was thinking of a controversy that happened just last week where a local newspaper in, I think, South Dakota, one of the Dakotas, one of the few Dakotas that we have in our country, (laughs) they were talking about the common reading series or something like books that were assigned to college students to read at a college um, in one of the Dakotas. And somehow, like, a young adult author was suggested. And this woman, who was a student at the time, said, like, this is, like, this is a book for teenage girls. Like, I liked that when I was a teen, but, you know, I got involved, like, because I think that that's not, college students shouldn't be reading this book. It's not serious enough, basically. And this is a YA author who, like, wrote, she doesn't write, like, fantasy books, like, fantasy young adult literature, but, like, more, like, realistic. Realistic. Y- but she, she was saying that my YA book shouldn't be college reading. That's what she was saying? Yeah, no, a student, a student from the college, like an ex-student from the college had said, like, I don't think these books should be read as like the, they shouldn't be assigned to all students. And basically the the author of the book who had gotten dissed in, I have to emphasize a incredibly local South Dakota or North Dakota, (laughs) one of the Dakotas newspaper, like she found it and posted it. And said, you know, authors are people and like, this is so hurtful. And then like a bunch of other writers were like tweeting back at her saying like, fuck that bitch. Like, oh my God. Um, it, and then started implying that she wasn't putting value on stories that teen girls like 
um, therefore she was problematic, right? So, so the point yeah. is, my point is, what do you think? That in these in these two examples, the idea of like representing marginalized mm. voices and experiences, which is a valid idea, and the idea of like expanding the canon is a valid idea, is conflated with like a market directive. Yes. Which is that yes. like YA exists to serve a market, which is that like Young kids want to read books and that's cool and that's great and they should be served and, and people should sell books to them. That's fine. But they shouldn't be able to use to like piggyback on this idea that art by and about, you know, white cis gender heterosexual males like is the is the gold standard like sorry i'm losing my my train yeah. of thought here but like well, but the, the the point is like they're 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 conflating the two the the between the idea of representation and the demands of the market and they're basically saying that because the market demands this because the market demands a voice for marginalized or, or like representation for marginalized voices. My product is that. And if you don't buy my product, you're racist. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of. Right. So, so, yeah. so, so that's the, that's the idea. And like, so that's the kind of like anti elitism, like, so the anti canon, that's the way I see it. Like the, the, the Danish Schwartz idea, which is like, she's like people who care about the canon are like pretentious hipsters and actually like what's good is like what's popular and that is something that is profoundly depressing to me right yeah. and like the idea of like a post-colonial critique of the canon is great but taking that capital taking the post-colonial like taking edward said and using it to say that like marvel movies shouldn't be criticized by someone like martin scorsese is like pretty perverse and disgusting to me and i think it's like pretty indicative of like the cultural moment that we're in yeah so on, on this point i agree with you a lot i mean i think yeah that the whole we could have an episode on the marvel thing i think what everyone missed about that is like these are huge money makers like has has they has this industry ever allocated this much of its energies to one genre in I would argue maybe not. And the reason they're doing it now is because it's making them more money than other movies had made them, you know, including movies yeah. by people like Sofia Coppola, and, uh, you know, um, and uh, uh, not just, you know, Martin Scorsese. So m m I wanted to like, m like my two cents in the capitalism thing is, is something I'm going to like approach from the teaching perspective. And I read this, we, I sent Max also this article in The Guardian by an Australian English professor named Tegan Daylight. Now, everyone will know, everyone who knows me in real life will know that it's really hard for me to speak in a serious way about Australians. <laughs> yeah. And like, this is how much I think Tegan Daylight is right, that I'm not going to make any of my normal Australian jokes. Okay. okay. Getting very serious. Getting so serious. I'm not going to talk about the about fact Australian. that like there, no one in Australia is literate. Because Tegan Daylight's on it in a serious way. So her, she starts with this point, basically. Students are customers right? Universities make money, they make more money with more students. And they can continually extract more and more value from students as they raise tuition and, f and find all these other ways to raise revenues out of the student experience. And one, one consequence of, and, and that leads to basically the customer's always right. And mm -hmm. so there's been an, um, quite an abridgment of, of rigor in the academy. And she's talking about Australia, but it's 
speaks to my experience very i had cases where i had multiple cases where i had students who plagiarized i went to my superiors i was like here's where they plagiarized from this is the ucla policy of what you do and i'm going to enact this and i'm supposed to report it to you and they were like um don't enact it don't punish them it's fine you know like let them off with a warning yeah multiple times Damn. Multiple, multiple different superiors. I and, never and, did that. I see. I, I, I like checked certain students and I never, I never found a student plagiarizing. So I, yeah. I don't know what I would have done. I, I, I've had it for other forms of, of, of egregious behavior. And, you know, basically it's like, so I'm going to quote Tegan Daylight, the Australian professor. She's talking about, you know, when they're reading and they find a text difficult and they don't know what to say, which I, I deal with this like every single time I teach. Um, they feel this hurt. There's no reason for them to continue reading. There's so much else to read that is shorter and not just aimed at them, but in the case of their uh, Facebook feed, tuned to their experience, marketed to them. Why would they bother reading something that was neither for them nor about them? And so in, what she's trying to say is I want them to notice what a powerful tool literature is to understand that without it, we can't know ourselves or the society we live in. Getting back to like our original point, you know, I want them to see that reading breeds thinking and thinking breeds resistance. And surely, especially right now, that is a good thing. And so I I think that the, I mean, capitalism has always had its formative anti-elitism, you know, right, overthrow the aristocracy to promote the bourgeois. But in in this instance, I, you know, capitalism can appropriate the most progressive ideas for its own ends and has always been super good at that you know like those commercials like of american express where they're talking about how much money they give away and they're like if you use your american express this week we'll provide this much food to a homeless person in other words we're gonna let this motherfucker starve to death unless you use your credit card Mm -hmm. it's not up to us do you want him to die do you want this guy to like keel over and die no, use your fucking credit card and we'll do the rest, you know? And like that type of appropriation, like you're saying, it's being weaponized against the canon. And the interesting consequence of this, and I don't have like footnotes that I can give you, but I'm just telling you from private conversation. So again, like I come from a complete department that's very in intellectual orientation, post-colonial and Marxist. And, you know, these are most many... All of my mentors are either um, uh, women or and or queer and or from like what was used to be called the third world or a combination of those things. And I would say that that crew is now very much on the pro-canon side because there's a feeling like we're all endangered species. Like literature, like reading books is threatened by this new model of culture. It's threatened by the new model of the university, which is the sort of online min- minimal contact, you know, you know, but it, it, it's also, the, it's, it's threatened by the Marvel thing, you know, it's threatened by Twitter. And it's like last week or a few weeks ago, I, I was with a literature scholar and an historian and we brought up Harold Bloom, who famously wrote this book called The Western Canon and was like, he was the big bad guy of the pro-canon side in like the 90s. Um, yeah. Professor and he died Yale. a few weeks ago. Yeah. He died a few weeks ago. So we were talking about him. And the historian was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you literature people like are talking about like as if we'd brought up like Voldemort or something. Mm. And I was like, dude, we're like him, him and us, you know, maybe back then we would be like yelling at him that his list of 850 essential works like didn't have enough authors from, you know, the third world. But 
And I would still yell at him about that now, but we would also just be like huddled up together being like, people, please read complex works of literature. And read not, books or read a fucking book. Yeah. Read a fucking book. Like I'm going to close with this quote from, from Bloom from, from that book, The Western Canon, uh, which is written in 94. He wrote, what are now called departments of English will be renamed departments of cultural studies where Batman comics, Mormon theme parks, television, movies, and rock will replace Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Wordsworth, and Wallace Stevens. And I would add, by the way, right now, will also replace Chino Achebe, you know? Yeah, yeah. Major, once elitist universities and colleges will still offer a few courses in Shakespeare, Milton, and their peers, but these will be taught by departments of three or four scholars equivalent to teachers of ancient Greek and Latin. And that has absolutely happened, you know? yeah. The, the shrinking of English Fuck. departments yeah. and, and literature uh, departments. And they're yeah. being replaced by media studies departments and, you know, all this kind of stuff like that. But we're not the man. We're the resistance because the tools of resistance are in this mode of engagement with the world that, that literature offers, even canonical literature, and in some ways, most of all canonical literature. I mean, it, it, is, it is often, that's where the struggle for power has taken place culturally, and to just say we're going to bypass any immersion in that really just I think that like the Dana Schwartz and the and the Twitter mob that you're talking about, they're just like unwitting soldiers in in a game of like there's more profitable products on the market. So let's stop spending our our time is money. And if we spend time reading literature, we're not like buying shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a downer note. Uh, <laughs> sorry but like everyone go out and read some books and like don't just read herman melville um even though read middlemarch read all sorts of stuff read chino achebe read tony morrison these books speak to what it means to be human and you can understand i'm a white man but the world that herman melville is describing is totally alien to me you know what i mean yeah. So you can see, you can understand what's different about him because, or what's different about this world because it's a 19th century world, but you can also see what's the same. And like transversing these boundaries can teach you what it means to be human because you see what's the, what's the same and what's different. Like what, what is conditioned by yeah. your identity. So I, so I encourage everyone to read, read white men, but also... <laughs> other people too because that's you know it'll teach you what it means to be a person and, and that's the whole point like and 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 that that's gonna give you i mean there's a there's a political aspect to it too as well you were talking about this for this quote you were just saying it like gives you the materials for uh resistance, resistance if you are so oriented and yeah like it's it's um yeah, so it's so like I just don't want to end on a bummer. Like, oh no, I'll I'll end on a like in in the core. If I thought about it, maybe I'd I'd have another answer. But pretty much my my go to answer of the book that influenced me the most is Virginia Woolf to the Lighthouse. It's mm. like the best novel ever written. Yeah. Um. And so, if we didn't have a concept of a can't like, I would love to live in a world where everyone Virginia had Woolf is lit. Virginia right. Woolf was fucking lit. I would love to live in a world where everyone had to read Virginia Woolf. I would love to live in a world where everyone had to read Toni Morrison, right? And and that's, you know, we can negotiate about what's on that list and, and fight over it and change it. But if, you know, as long as we're like fighting the good fight and the right fight, you know, 
versus, well, you know what? Like, I'm a Jewish guy, so, like, I can't fucking relate to this British lady in the 20s. Like, what the fuck is she talking about? Like, I live now. I have an iPhone. Like, she didn't have an iPhone. Like, what's all this stuff about, like, how she has to, like, clean her attic? I, fuck this, you know? Somehow yeah. it was a positive experience to engage with that and strongly encourage folks to engage with Virginia Woolf and Toni Morrison and... Even though she's anti-Semitic, Alice Walker, because I don't care about people's behavior. I just read the color purple, you know. For sure. Yeah. And also, like, continue the work of trying to get non-white men included in the canon. But you have to give a shit about the canon for that. If we throw out the canon, then then all that work goes to waste. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Put 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 them up there with Shakespeare. Like, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great task. That's a great mission to to undertake instead of like saying shakespeare is bullshit and he wasn't actually that good let's like say i you mean know. like also just like try reading like a few of his plays and tell me he's bullshit <laughs> yeah we're going long i think yeah. our computers are gonna like you know run out of ram so um we'll call it a night at that and we'll talk to you next time literally everything guys write us emails at literally everything pod at gmail.com follow us and we'll read your emails it's been we'll proven read on, we'll read them on air i mean aside from all the other emails that we didn't read on air we got so many emails we have so <laughs> many fans that aren't our friends that we know um uh, yeah. outside so so yeah so yeah go good talking to you this has been fun